Welcome back to another spine-tingling installment. I have an exciting program slated for this evening. An episode full of ghosts, aliens, curses, and a whole lot more. So sit back, dim the lights, and lock the door. Don't worry, I'll take care of the rest. But before we even begin this evening, I need to get you all caught up on something called the Debeck Box. Jewish folklore tells of the Dibbik, an evil spirit bound to this world by an earthly tether, in this case, to a box. The name comes from an ancient Hebrew word meaning to cling, and according to Jewish mythology, a Dibbik is a malicious spirit, believed to be a tormented lost soul attached to an inanimate object, until, that is, someone comes along to release it. Now that clip property of ILTV, Israeli News. And now that you know what she's about to discuss, let's dive right into it. So if you don't mind, please join me in welcoming Autumn from Minnesota to the program. Hi, Derek. My name is Autumn, and I'm calling from Minnesota. Um, I've been listening to the show for the last few months now, just kind of binging it, and I've wanted to call in. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of the Dybbuk box or Dybbuk box. It's a supposedly haunted box that was created, uh, I believe, during World War II or during the Holocaust by a group of Jewish women. And they supposedly put a Dybbuk, which is a type of malevolent spirit or demon, inside the box. And yeah, so that's just a little bit of background on the box. And it's been circulating um, on eBay and stuff for a few years and whoever owns the box or has possession of the box like terrible things happen to them sudden death sudden like violent deaths like car crashes and stuff just bad things happen to them well my family and my mom's cousin he is a professor of religion i believe he lives in missouri i think he purchased the box and wanted to study it. And he ended up uh, writing a book about it titled The Dibbuk Box. And he gave the first printing, I believe the first copy, to my grandfather when the book first came out. And I think I was in seventh grade when all this occurred. But I asked to borrow the book from my grandfather. I mean, he said, okay. He had not read it yet. He was a busy man. So I borrowed the book. And inside was just a little note to my grandfather from my mom's cousin. 
and just kind of talking about this is the first printing, whatever, and talking about our Czech heritage that kind of inspired him or whatever. So I had the book, and I read the first couple pages, but I have a very short attention span, and I did not finish it. It got wrapped up in schoolwork or whatever. And I talked to some of my friends at school about it. And my one friend, she was very interested in this stuff, so she asked to read the book. So I said, sure, why not? So I lent her the book, and she took it home, and she had it for a couple weeks. And then she gave it back to me just suddenly. I said, oh, did you finish it? She's like, no, I didn't. And she just didn't want this book anymore. Like, it was very, uh, I don't know the right word is. It was very obvious. And so she told me that there's a point in the book where my cousin, him and his entire family, started to smell urine all over their house and stuff. And this is one of the many happenings that came along with owning this box. And she had gotten to that point in the book, and then her and her entire family started smelling urine inside their house. You know, you can kind of be like, whatever, it's probably just a psychological thing. She was reading about it, so then she started to smell it. But it wasn't just her that was smelling it. It was also her family. And she told me that she had never told her family about this book, about the box, about, you know, that she was reading this. They had no knowledge that this was going on. And so she just gave it back because she was so freaked out that her family was smelling it as well as her. And so I kind of took it back and was like, okay, that's really weird. But I didn't really think of any, think much of it. I mean, I kept the book. And then my older sister, she's nine years older than me, she was interested in the book. And so I said, yeah, here, take it, give it to her. And she, you know, brought it back to her apartment or whatever. And she had it for a few weeks. Same thing happened to her. She returned it to me and she said, yeah, I can't do that because once she got to the urine part in the book, her and her husband started smelling urine all over the house and he might have known that she was reading the book I did not get that if that was clear but I don't think he would have known about that specific part in the book with the urine and so but the same thing happened her and her husband started smelling urine all over their apartment so at this point I have this book I have not read it more than a few pages and I am pretty freaked out about it and Looking back, I mean, I was in seventh grade when this happened. I'm now a junior in college. But I don't recall why I never gave it back to my grandfather. I just didn't give it back to him. So I kept a hold of this book. And then when I was a freshman in high school, I moved out of a house. I was moving from one house to another. And I had this book, which I was kind of freaked out with. You know, I I didn't want to read it, but I didn't know what to do with it. So I just... And at this point, my grandfather had passed away, so I couldn't give it back to him. So I just made this conscious decision to leave it in the house that I was moving away from. I didn't want anything to do with it. Looking back, I probably, you know, wasn't the best move, but I I consciously set this book in that house and left it there. I didn't tell anybody what I was doing. I just left it in that house because I didn't want to deal with it. Well, fast forward to about six seven months ago, I moved in with my aunt on the same side as my grandfather. So my grandfather would be her dad. I moved in with her. And I was just kind of sitting downstairs one day looking at the books that she had in the bookshelf. And I recognized this book. And I immediately, my heart just jumped. And I grabbed the book and I looked at it. And I looked on the inside and there was that message from my mom's cousin to my grandfather. 
the message that was only on that copy of the book because it was it was a message to my grandfather he only got this one book he only got this first copy and it was the first printing and I don't know how this book got to my aunt's house so I asked her I said hey like do you recognize this book how did you get it she's like I don't know I didn't know that I had that I didn't know where I got it from or where it came from I had been wanting to read it and I was curious about it but I had I didn't get it I didn't ask anybody for it I didn't take it so she didn't take it from the house she doesn't know where that book came from it just was on the shelf one day and so that really freaked me out I still have not read the book I think my aunt started to read it but I don't know if she finished it or got to the urine part so yeah it was just I know this isn't necessarily the typical entry that you have but I thought that it was really weird and I still have a book haven't read it don't know what to do with it really but apparently I can't just leave it somewhere because it'll pop back up yeah you can look up the Dybbuk box I, my, my mom's cousin does not own it anymore. He actually gave it to Zach Baggins for his paranormal museum or whatnot. So you can look it up. And yeah, I just wanted to call in and talk about it because it was kind of a freaky story of events that happened to me and kind of unique. So yeah, I really love the show and I appreciate this platform for people to share. Thank you for your time and thank you. Thank you, Autumn. The Dybbuk box or the Dubbuk box is all the rage these days. We covered it several times on Paranormal Caught on Camera, and rapper Post Malone had a run-in with one recently. And as Autumn mentioned, Zach Baggins' Las Vegas Museum also has one. And I find it kind of funny that Baggins refers to his box as the Dybbuk box, as if there's only one. Well, essentially, it's just a box. Typically, historically, a wine cabinet. And, of course, the other key ingredient. A vengeful ghost. And apparently, there's no shortage of these terrifying boxes. A quick search on eBay will surely convince you that there are more than one of these things out here. You can pick one up from anywhere from 15 to 200 bucks. You can get your hands on your own. But circling back to Autumn's tale, the box that Baggins ended up with, the one that Autumn says was donated by her second cousin, well, it's still available to be viewed there at the museum. Sarah and I have been meaning to drive up to Vegas and check it out ourselves. Maybe, hopefully, sometime this year. But for now, it sits in a glass display case. Far from wandering fingers. Oh, and the story that Autumn told about her cousin selling the box and writing the book. Well, that's all true. If you have Discovery Plus, check out episode one of the series, Deadly Possessions, to see an interview with Jason Axon, Autumn's cousin and author of the 2011 book, The Dybbuk Box. And something tells me this isn't the last we hear about these spooky boxes. But until that time, thanks again, Autumn, for sharing your entry. Now, if you have a story you would like me to consider for the show, give my 24-hour hotline a call at 1-888-608-NIGHT. That's 1-888-608-6444. Now, next up, we venture to Connecticut, where Victoria is waiting with an entry. 
Hi there. My name is Victoria. I'm a huge fan of your podcast. I've always been a fan of cryptid since I was a kid. So when I recently discovered your podcast like a year ago, I've been like following along for the longest time. I had never had anything really that paranormal happen to me until this past Monday. I was sitting outside on the stoop, just look up at the stars and stuff. I'm sitting there and all of a sudden I hear this loud humming sound. And it was almost like a hum that's like in your head, but it was so pronounced. It was like so loud. It was almost like a ringing in your ear type of a sound. I look up and I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was in the shape of a rhombus. If you don't know what a rhombus is, it's basically like a sideways square. But anyways, it wasn't like far enough in the sky where it was a plane because people are always like, well, well, is it a plane? It was definitely not a plane. It was literally hovering not that far above me, which is why I quickly went inside after I kind of checked. It had four lights, two white ones opposite each other, and then there was a blue and a red one. And the way it was moving, it it wasn't spinning or anything, but it was kind of like gliding, like down and then upwards, downwards and upwards. I don't think it was a drone because I'd seen drones before and it didn't resemble one. But the sound, I can't get over like the humming sound. It was just so loud. Uh, and it scared me because I obviously don't want to be abducted by an alien. It's not in my list of things to want to do. So I went inside and I went upstairs and I was, I don't know if this is related to it, but I was throwing up like out of the blue, like just, just sick to my stomach, just vomiting incessantly. And I wanted to tell my roommate about the UFO, but I didn't feel well enough to do so. So I texted him and said, I think I saw a UFO outside. I'm going to bed. You know, I work in the morning or whatnot. The next day I asked him about it and he told me that he had heard the strangest sound outside, but he didn't go and check it out. So I was kind of annoyed that he hadn't because if he had, I would have had somebody else had seen it. I don't know if anyone else in this area has witnessed anything like it, but I did try Googling it, you know, the lights, just the shape and such, but I haven't heard anything about it. But yeah, that's my uh, UFO story, which I'm almost positive that's what it was. But I figured I would share that with you. Thank you. Thanks, Victoria. Well, folks, what do you say? Anyone around Bristol, Connecticut seen anything like that? A hovering, humming rhombus, or perhaps diamond-shaped craft? You know, it sounds a lot like the flying deltas that we've been hearing a lot about lately. In fact, I think we had a more square-like version reported recently. Come to think of it, that humming has been reported recently, too. Now, I certainly can't tell you if anyone else saw what you did, Victoria. But I can say that others have seen things very similar. So I hope that helps bring some peace of mind. And thanks again for calling in. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Are you experiencing a lack in motivation? Are you feeling helpless, trapped, detached, fatigued, or even worse? These are symptoms of burnout, and you could be suffering and not even know about it. Now, we normally associate burnout with our jobs, our work, but that's not the only cause. Any of our everyday roles in life can lead us to feeling burned out. Sometimes I myself have a hard time taking a break, whether it's from work or projects around the cabin. But I found that my production and creativity increase after I started forcing myself to take breaks. So maybe you'll benefit as well. 
BetterHelp Online Therapy wants to remind you to prioritize yourself. Talking with someone can help you figure out what's causing stress in your life. Personally, therapy has given me the tools I need to deal with my stress and anxiety in a healthier way so I can be the best version of myself. Now, BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. Now, this podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Monsters Among Us listeners get 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com forward slash Monsters Among Us. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Monsters Among Us for 10% off your first month. As always, supporting our sponsors supports the show. So thank you for listening and back to the stuff that keeps you up at night. Now this next one takes us to my old stomping grounds. Sort of. Please join me in welcoming Gia from the state of Ohio. Hi, Derek. My name is Gia, and I have been putting this off for some time. I don't know why, but I wanted to call and share my story. Love your show. Uh, This took place maybe in 2006, 2007. I was attending college in Athens, Ohio, at Ohio University. Um, And if you know anything about Athens, it's a relatively haunted town with a pretty uh, ghost-filled history. I think anyone who even enters into that college hears stories about how all the cemeteries in town, if you connect the dots and draw a line around connecting each of them, it forms a pentagram over the map. I mean, I'm not going to these cemeteries. I'm pretty easily spooked. But anyway, um, I was living in an apartment my junior year on the main street called Court Street. And my best friend and I were having a lazy Saturday At the time, there were three of us in a two-bedroom apartment, so she and I shared a room with two separate beds, and we were sitting on our futon having a movie marathon, and I think we were entering into our second or third movie of the day. I think it was Dodgeball. Anyway, the sun started to set, and um, it was at that point of the evening where it's just starting to get where the sun is past the buildings, and it's getting a little dark. And we're watching the movie and I start to get bored and my eyes wander over to the door and I immediately see this really tall, dark figure of a man, complete shadow person. His eyes were really hollow and static gray, like on a television screen, if you lose connection, like the old TV sets. And I just slowly looked away and I said to my friend, dude, don't freak out. Just look at the door and tell me if you see anything. And she turns her head and she just starts screaming. Holy dude, what the is that? And she dies under the blanket that we're sharing and like is on my lap screaming. So I look back over to the door because for some reason I'm like oddly calm and this figure super hunched shoulders, quickly sidesteps to the right. And as she's still screaming, he squats down very low and gets low on the floor. But I can still see his eyes are these staticky gray. 
So at this point, because he's now moving and I realize that what I'm seeing is actually there, we both start screaming and our third roommate comes running up the steps, turns on the light, and she's standing in the door and going, what's going on? Are you guys okay? And we said, no, we're not okay. There was absolutely a dude standing in the doorway. But when she turned on the lights, I noticed that the doorway was full of like smoke. And I thought about it and put it in my memory bank and thought it was very strange, like a misty smoke. So she leaves, my roommate gets up, and I just didn't forget about it. And the next day, I was in my room by myself studying, and it was daylight. I mean, it was completely normal at 2 p.m. I turned to get out of my chair to leave, and the doorway was full of smoke again. And the sunlight is coming through. So it's like that visual where almost like a fog machine where if light is piercing through it, it emphasizes the fact that there is smoke or some kind of fog. And it didn't make any sense because, of course, there's no extinguished fire. It's just a regular day. Why would there be smoke? This occurred maybe two or three more times over the next couple of weeks. And then eventually it was done and just I forgot about it. After discovering your podcast, thanks to four of my family members who are obsessed, I did a little bit of research and I found out that that strip of the street where I lived had burned down on two separate occasions. Once in 1877, they rebuilt it. And then again in March of 1984, and they called it the Phoenix Project. And apparently with news reports, no one died, but my apartment complex was called the Phoenix on court. And it just kind of got me thinking, I don't know, I guess there were no casualties, but maybe, I don't know, something or somebody made his way through. Maybe my door was some kind of portal. I don't know. Regardless, after listening to more and more episodes of your show, I just felt fully validated. And I know this happened. I know it was real. That guy in the doorway was just spooky, man. I mean, those eyes, they were hollow, but they were like electrified with that static look. I don't know if any other listeners have had a similar experience with a shadow figure who've had eyes like that. I haven't listened to every episode of the podcast yet. I'm getting there. But anyway, I love what you do. You scare me every time. All your callers are great, and I can't wait to keep listening. So thanks for it all, and uh, take care. Thanks, Gia. Now, I grew up about 50 miles from the town of Athens and the Ohio University campus. I've even done some drinking in various parts of town back in the day, none of which I remember. I even considered applying to the university at one point in time. But ultimately, I ended up going to school in the opposite corner of the state. But a month or so into my collegiate career, I saw something on television that made me think my choice of schools was a mistake. Does anyone else remember the program, Scariest Places on Earth? According to the British Society for Psychical Research, the 13th most haunted place on Earth is Athens, Ohio. People started telling me, oh, you live in the haunted room in Wilson Hall. Lights, curling irons, radios, all would go on and off on their own. You can hear what sounds like marbles going across the ceiling. You couldn't really even make out her face 
that you could see through her. Sometimes we'd hear rattling inside. I decided not to stay in my room anymore. I stayed with friends. And in this one window, you could just barely see a presence. I promise you, I know it sounds exaggerated, but you could tell there was something up there. Ooh, yeah. As soon as this episode premiered on television, I knew I should have become a bobcat. Well, those feelings of regret eventually faded, but the strange activity in and around the town of Athens, Ohio, certainly didn't. It seems like every corner of the town has some sort of reputation. As YouTuber, it's Christina Form demonstrates. Established in 1804, in a city named for the university that would be built there, Ohio U is the oldest university on the west side of the Appalachian Mountains. Some believe Athens is such a hotspot for paranormal activity because it sits at the center of five cemeteries which form the shape of a pentagram when connected, and that the town was built on an indigenous burial ground. While many of the student residence halls have their own ghoulish tenants, Crawford, Jefferson, and Wilson halls stand out among the rest. Perhaps the scariest and most haunted spot in town and at Ohio U is the Ridges. Formerly known as the Athens Lunatic Asylum, the Ridges opened in 1874 with the intent to be a sanctuary to those in the area with mental health needs. There are several cemeteries around the premises, many with just numbered graves, as the records of who was buried there are long gone. Now wait until you hear the most gut-wrenching part. The most famous story, however, is that of the stain. Patient Margaret Schilling went missing one day in December 1978, and as patients were allowed to come and go, her disappearance wasn't to anyone's concern until her decaying body was found the next month in a cold, unoccupied wing. Her clothes were neatly stacked in a pile on the windowsill, and the concrete floor she died on was stained in the perfect shape of how she was laying. If you happened to break into the building while it was still standing, you would have been able to catch a glimpse of the stain, as it never came out of the ground. Now check out the show notes to get the link to hear more legends from campus. And the link to the Scariest Places on Earth episode is there as well, if you're feeling a little nostalgic. And with legends like that around Gia, it's certainly no surprise that you experienced something strange in your apartment. And we can't thank you enough for sharing it with us. Now, folks, if you're not already rocking some Monsters Among Us merchandise, what's stopping you? It's certainly not the inventory. We are stocked to the gills. And it's not the shipping either, because it's fast and almost always on time. And it's certainly not the price. Because from now until I decide that it's over, we're celebrating our Dogman Days of Summer sale. Currently, everything in our shop is 20% off. That's monstersamongus.com forward slash shop. So pick yours up, put yours on, and wait for the compliments to flood in. Now this next call revisits the bedroom visitor phenomena. This time, with a slightly new twist. Ella from Nevada. Welcome to the show. Hi Derek, my name's Ella. I'm from Las Vegas. My story takes place here in Vegas about 2018, 2019, I was about 12 years old at the time. And I tell people this a lot that, quote unquote, the monster in my closet was real for me. And that's because when I was 12, we had a bunch of different paranormal happenings in our house. Um, My mom had heard like somebody banging on the window and would turn around and nobody would be there. And our 
our backyard was filled with rocks. So you would have heard somebody running away. You would have heard the dog walking. You would have heard if something hit the window and then ran away. There's been multiple things, but what happened with me specifically was I was asleep in my room and I had a TV at the foot of my bed and my closet was behind my bed. That was the layout of my room. And I had this dream where I was in the living room of my house and there was this man, this tall, kind of longish, like 2005 shaggy hair. I know that sounds stupid, but it makes sense in my head. (laughs) And he was wearing all white, just like this full white suit with like black glasses. And I just felt this sense of like serenity and calmness around him and had this urge to call him Matthew. Well, when I wake up, I'm hearing gunshots, like right outside my window, gunshots. And at the time I lived on an Air Force base, so loud noises, things like planes flying overhead, hearing them like testing bombs in the like site that there was like a couple miles away was normal to me. But I kept hearing these gunshots, like they were right outside my window to a point where it was shaking my window. I felt something like sit on the bed, but there was nothing there. And I was, I was screaming, but my mother told me like she never heard me scream. And I see out of my TV comes this black puff of smoke and dirt or whatever it was. It was just black. And it kind of formed into something walking and like stopped and looked at me and went back into my closet. And I just remember getting out of bed, running to my mom's room. I'm crying. I'm hysterical, which is very hard for me to do. I don't get scared that easy. But my mom knew something was up from there. So we've had different, like, occurrences. Like, my family used to be really Christian, so I had a cross in my room. After that experience, I had watched this cross on my wall turn upside down on its own on multiple occasions to a point where I was refusing to go into my room. There was another instance where I was changing in my bedroom and my closet door opened and shut on its own. And when I checked, there was nothing in there. So my mom had somebody come out to like bless the house because she didn't know how to do that at that point. And somebody told my mom that there was possibly some dark entity or demonic entity living in my closet. (laughs) So that was always really scary for me to deal with. There was other occurrences, but a couple of years later, I was living at my grandparents' house for the summer, and I saw the same thing. It came to me in a dream. My aunt had triplets, but lost one of them before they were born. And it came to me in a dream in the form of that. And I woke up, and I saw the man in white again, and I felt calm. And then he went away, and something, like, tried to hold me down to my bed. I didn't see it, but I felt it. I got up in the middle of the night, like whatever time it was, probably around like 1 to one thirty in the morning. And I called my mom, who was back here in Las Vegas. I then slept on the couch for the rest of the summer. I was terrified. So this could be whatever. I don't know what it could be. Let me know what you think. Demon, shadow figure, I've seen them all at this point. <laughs> Thank you for listening and have an awesome day. I love your show. I listen to it with my mom and sister on the road all the time. Bye. Now the twist being that whatever this nightmare visitor is, it seems to be more connected to Ella than it does her bedroom. And it seemingly followed her to her grandparents' house. So does that suggest sleep paralysis, a reoccurring demon of her own creation? 
Or is this a symptom of a stressful teenage lifestyle? Or, perhaps, does Ella have some sort of connection to another realm, universe, or plane of existence? She certainly didn't mention any further experiences in her call that would suggest some sort of extrasensory ability. But then, she called back. Hi Derek, it's Ella from Las Vegas again. This happened at the House of Blues in Las Vegas. It's a concert venue. Um, It was September 29th, 2021, and I grew up loving this band called Black Veil Brides. They're my favorite. And I was finally getting to meet them. Now, keep in mind, I've been told by multiple people who claim to be psychic, mediums, whatever, you know, term you want to call it, but in tune with the spiritual realm world, again, whatever you want to call it. And a lot of them say, because of my eyesight disorder, I'm prone to seeing spiritual entities and stuff like that, which can be proven. I have a handful of stories, but I was really, really nervous to meet this band, and this could very well just be my emotions. I was freaking out. But as I met them, I was looking at their guitarist, Jinx, who... I later on this night found out that his grandfather had passed away and I saw this white like smoke just behind him the whole time and I thought it was the lighting because like the stage crew was you know doing lighting and sound check at the same time as I was meeting the band and I just felt like this overwhelming sense of like proudness for Jinx like I was like a parental figure to him I'm much younger (laughs) I'm 16 so I'm a lot younger than this band is I never really talked about it, but it was really weird seeing that because it just kind of like looked like a person, like it looked like it was standing right behind him. It was so weird to see that because I thought it was just lighting. But then later on that night, whenever they were on stage, they talked about how Jinx's grandfather had died unexpectedly prior to the show. And I think that might have been, you know, Jinx's grandfather saying goodbye to him in some, you know, some way. So I don't know. That could be it. It could just be the lighting, but I think it's a very sweet and wholesome story. This is the first time I've told anybody about this, so I hope you can use this. Again, you're doing awesome with your show. Totally love it. My mom and sister and I listen to it on car trips all the time. Goodbye. Well, there's that to consider. Make up your own mind on what's going on here. And Ella, thank you for the entry. Unless this is your first time tuning in, you've probably heard me talk about the benefits of microdosing. Now, if you do a quick search online, you'll see that all sorts of people are microdosing for mental wellness purposes, like to manage anxiety and insomnia, like I do. Now, before you let three little letters keep you from trying them, keep in mind that microdose gummies by today's sponsor, Lumi Labs, are completely legal everywhere in the United States. And while these gummies do contain cannabinoids, they don't get you high in that stereotypical sense. No, I'm talking about entry-level small doses of THC and CBD that can help you wind down, relax, and sleep like a baby. Other hemp products in the market today tend to only focus on CBD, but microdose gummies harness the full power of cannabinoids and therapeutic terpenes, which is far more effective in bringing you benefits like mood enhancement, tension relief, and sleep aid. And get this, they're infused with Oregon-grown berries, so they taste as great as they make you feel. 
Now, Microdose is available nationwide. To learn more about microdosing THC, just do a quick search online or go to microdose.com and use code MONSTERSAMONGUS to get free shipping and 30% off your first order. Links can be found in the show notes, but again, that's microdose.com and the code is MONSTERSAMONGUS. Now, as always, supporting our sponsors supports the show. So thank you for listening. And now back to that eye shine glowing from the forest. And that brings us to tonight's final entry. And this one will sound familiar to a lot of longtime listeners. But for those that don't know, you soon will. Samantha in Canada, please go ahead with your story. Hi, my name's Samantha, and I'm from British Columbia, Canada. Uh, my granny, she's not living anymore. She was born in 1913 in a city called Alverston in England and it's the Lake District. So she told me a story one time that she never told anybody else because she thought people would think she was nuts. And I can see, after you hear the story, maybe maybe you'll think she's nuts too, I don't know. But she remembered when she was a very little girl, maybe three or four is what she had told me. And she remembers laying down in a field and there were daisies all over the field. And she remembers laying there and kind of falling asleep as a little girl. I guess it was okay to be running around back then, that little. So she's laying down, she fell asleep. And she remembers kind of being awake. And when she opened her eyes, she said there were these little alien type creatures and they had a big head and they had big eyes and they didn't have anything on. They were like the aliens, what you'd see in the alien autopsy show. That's how she described them. And they were silver in color. So. She remembers going on a ship of some sort and she remembers laying on a table and she was in a lot of pain, she said. She said that they hurt her and she was crying and there was this needle that came down and it pierced her stomach a little bit above her belly button and she remembers that hurting and then the next thing she knows is she was waking back up in that field. And she told me that it's the truth. She remembers it. It's absolutely accurate. So also, too, on her stomach, she showed me a scar from where this needle had punctured her stomach. My granny wouldn't make something up like that. It had to be real. And she also told me, and I don't know if anybody else has heard of this, but they tend to follow the same family all the time. Like, they keep watch over them, and other family members might have the same or a different experience with them yeah it sounds kind of creepy i've seen things too in the sky she totally believed in aliens she said they are real and nobody should doubt it (laughs) she also had twins and she thought later on she had fraternal twins my mom and her brother later on in life she also said she thinks that they were checking her out for reproduction of some sort I guess that's all kind of wow to hear, but I totally believe her. She's not living anymore, but I'm sure glad she told me about that story. What happened later on in life is she always had a feeling of strange, I don't know if it was anxiety or it made her feel strange whenever she saw daisies after that happened to her. And also my mom's brother, her twin brother, he had been coming home late one night. This would have been in the early 60s maybe the late 50s and he was 
riding his bike, and he swears up and down that he got chased through the park where they grew up in D.C., and that the chain that was on his bike while he was cycling came right off his bike. So when he was cycling, he was going nowhere. He got lifted off the ground, and he was chased. And then the chain went back on his bike, and he finished coming home. And my mom and my granny had both said how terrified he looked when he got home. He was white. He was shaken up. He couldn't even talk for a while. So that, I think, is where I meant to tell you about that part about the family being followed by the same thing. They keep it in the family is what I've heard. And that's what my granny said. I hope other people find it interesting. I'd love to hear other stuff about people experiencing something like that because it's really cool. All right. Take care and thank you so much for the podcast. I love it. Thank you, Samantha. That's an over 100-year-old alien abduction account. And that's much more rare than you can probably imagine. The modern alien abduction phenomena only really began with the abduction of Betty and Barney Hill in 1961. Nearly 50 full years after Samantha's granny's experience. And speaking of Betty Hill... Another detail in this secondhand experience that gravitates us toward the Hill case is the mention of a needle-like object being inserted in her abdomen. Here is Betty Hill in her own words, describing her own similar painful procedure. Then with me, they did what they called testing my nervous system, and he tried to insert a needle-like instrument into my navel, which he called a pregnancy test, And it caused pain, so they stopped doing it. They did not all look alike. Now that audio from an old Discovery Channel documentary. Now it's certainly noteworthy that both of these accounts include that same terrifying detail. Don't you think? But the detail that really got my imagination going was the mention that the creatures were silver in color. Then it dawned on me. I've heard that feature before. A previous call from a caller named Anne in California, to be exact. A call that was shared on both Monsters Among Us Beyond, 46 and number 50. So since many of the general listeners miss that content, here it is again in its full entirety. See if you can't spot the similarity. Hi, my name is Anne, and this is my mom's story. It happened in Los Angeles, California in 1960, 1961. I was just a baby, but my mom has always told this story and it's always the same. Anyway, my parents had immigrated from Europe in like 1957. So my mom was a homemaker with two little kids at the time. She didn't speak very much English and she certainly didn't read or write any English. We lived on a property that was pretty large I was about an acre, and it was in the shape of a rectangle. There was a house in the front where my aunt lived, and we lived in the house towards the back of the lot. So anyway, so she was doing laundry, and um, we didn't have a clothes dryer, so she would always take the clothes out and hang them out on the line. The clothes line was not like the ones they have today where they're like in a circle. This is old school, so... It was like two metal T's, and then the line was strung between the two metal T's. So anyways, she was taking the clothes out onto the porch, and it was a sunny morning, nothing unusual. 
So um, she stepped out and she had her basket of wet laundry in her hands and the house was kind of elevated so she had to go down these steps and so as she's carrying the basket, she's looking down at the steps so she doesn't fall. And then once she hits the ground, she starts walking towards the clothesline. And as she's walking, she's looking at the clothesline and she suddenly stops because she sees standing underneath the clothesline is this little silver man. And she said she just stopped and was completely frozen with fear. And so she's looking at him and he starts motioning for her to come. And she says that she hears in her head that he wants her to come. So she said she dropped the basket and she turned to run back in the house. And she said the next thing that she remembers is that she's in the kitchen and it's not the morning anymore. And that's all that she remembers. She doesn't remember anything else. So shortly after that, we moved to a suburb of LA and now it's like the 1960s, you know, UFO talk is everywhere. And so I'm telling my friends, you know, the subject comes up. So I tell my friends about the story. And when my mom finds out about it, she's like not happy. And she tells me, don't tell anyone about this story. And I said, well, why not? Isn't it true? And she said, yeah, it's true. But no one's going to believe you. And I don't want people to think that I'm crazy. So don't tell anybody the story anymore. So I didn't. And then, but then later on as an adult, you know, I've always been interested in UFOs and hauntings and all that stuff. So I um, asked her about the story because as I'm reading all of these different tales about UFOs and such, I always thought when she told me about the little silver man, I always pictured the silver man being like an astronaut with his silver suit on. But she said, no, that's not what he looks like. And when she described him again to me, I realized what she was describing was what I would think would be a gray alien. Yeah, it's a really strange story, but um, that's it. And I um, just wanted to tell you how much I enjoyed the podcast, and I think you're doing a great job, and I have other stories to tell, so I may be calling back. Thanks again. Bye. Thank you, Anne. That's one of the coolest calls we've had here on the show, in my opinion. And it's also worth noting that this experience possibly could have happened the same year as the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. Perhaps that's a coincidence, or perhaps that's a clue. Well, like I said, these two similar experiences got my imagination going and got me to thinking, wondering, are there other Silverman stories out there? So having limited knowledge on the subject, I contacted an expert in the field friend, researcher, UFO expert, and host of Our Strange Skies podcast, Rob Christofferson. And wouldn't you know, he pulled through with some information. And what he told me certainly piqued my interest. In the year of 1973, a time forever known as the year of the humanoid because of numerous sightings that year, strange human-like creatures were seen in the UK, Belgium, and of course here in the States with widely known cases like the Pascagoula incident and the Mansfield, Ohio sightings. And included in the list of encounters for that year is a little-known flap from the East Coast, a case researchers call the Goffston Creatures. Now of the two sightings that I could find, both took place outside of Goffston, New Hampshire, a small town 
just west of Manchester. And to this day, no one knows what really happened there some 47 years ago. But the following descriptions of the entities seen near Goffston were pulled directly from the witnesses themselves. Now the first witness, Lindia Morell, saw a craft while driving home from work late one evening. An experience not unlike what the Hills experienced some 12 years earlier. She saw strange lights in the distance, and before she knew it, a buzzing craft was hovering overhead. It was then that she got a glimpse of the ghastly occupants. To her horror, she saw a little figure behind the oval window. She described it as having a round, grayish head with an unsettling face. But fellow experiencer Rex Snow's description will most likely feel more relevant to you. They had oversized pointed ears, dark egg-shaped holes for eyes, and a large nose-like protrusion covered by the same silver material which resembled Klu Klux Klan hoods. He could not remember how many fingers they had, but did remember that their hands were also covered with the silver fabric, as if they had gloves. In fact, everything but the creature's boots seemed to be an apparently seamless coverall. The boots themselves were silver, had no heel, and their toes curled up like pixie shoes. Now, I don't know what it's worth, but there's that silver detail again. Oh, and another detail worth pointing out is that this flap occurred less than 100 miles from the location of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction. And believe it or not, it's not the last time someone happened upon a silver-skinned extraterrestrial. Back in 1996, a couple in Mason, Michigan, were raking leaves in their yard when they uncovered a gruesome sight. The dead body of a creature. A thing they described the following way. Thin, small, under four feet tall. Its head was described as being larger than a normal person's. And although the corpse was in various stages of decomposition, they were able to discern that the creature was covered in a thin silver skin. Now reports claim that the body was whisked away to Michigan State University in Lansing, where the FBI, CIA, and other top-ranking agencies took over making that essentially the last we've heard of this strange creature. Now, I wouldn't be doing my job as a fake journalist if I didn't mention that, although each reference to the Mason Leaf Pile alien is presented as if the story is genuine, the supposed date of the discovery was April 1st, 1996. April Fool's Day. So take from all that what you will. There are certainly other instances of these entities existing. What they are, where they come from. Well, that's a tougher nut to crack. But for now, a big thanks to both Samantha and Anne for their contributions. Because that's going to do it for this episode. Monsters Among Us is written and produced by me, Derek Hayes. Additional support is provided by Sarah Carter Hayes and Addie Lloyd. All media used in this production is done so under the protection of fair use. And if you have access to a computer in a few free moments, please consider rating and reviewing the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever they allow that sort of thing. And while you're at it, show us some love over on YouTube. And finally, the music from tonight's score was provided by Iron Cthulhu Apocalypse, Co.EG Music, and Carl Casey at White Bat Audio. 
Thank you so much for listening. And until next week. Tonight's bonus story is yet another odd entry, this time from Celine in the state of Texas. Hello, Derek and listeners. This is Celine. Allow me to state that I am in the DFW area now. However, I am from Canada. Now, I've had many experiences throughout my life, probably because I come from a long line of witches. We all are considered, as it has been put to me, lamps for activity. Now, I have many that come from a historical park and an old house that I lived in, but allow me to tell you the first that I remember. I was about six or seven and living in my grandparents' home. Now, this was a very quaint little place that my own mother and aunts had all grown up in. I lived in the upstairs bedroom next to my grandparents' bedroom. And I was gifted a blanket that was blue, fleecy, and very warm considering winters up there. It was not but two weeks later that this blanket would be destroyed. Allow me to explain. The moment I received this blanket and fell asleep with it, I received night terror, not nightmares in which spooky monsters and shadows might have spooked me. No, no, I received very gruesome, terrifying dreams that would cause me to scream in my sleep, causing my grandmother to rush across the hall to wake me up. I won't get into the gory detail, but certainly things that no child no child's mind would come up by themselves. I still boggle at how such imagery got into my brain. Nonetheless, it was not a week before I was gifted a different blanket. The blanket in question, the blue one, was promptly taken outside to the fire pit where it was burned ceremoniously. Now why, one might add, did we think that it was this blanket? Well, this blanket had a history. See, while my mother was growing up, she and her youngest sister, my aunt, lived in the same room. It turns out that when they were mid-teens, my aunt used this blanket and would go through not just night terrors herself, comma, but she would get up in the middle of the night and sleepwalk, not just wandering around or giggling to herself, but 
she would climb up onto my mother's bed and begin tearing at the walls with her claws as if she was a beast trying desperately to break out of a prison. Now, I wish I could say that in destroying the blanket, my dreams would be completely refreshed back to childhood, sweet dreaming, but I'm afraid that learning that fire releases rather than destroys, I have gone through many health problems ever since. Leg issues, breathing issues, all the more. Now, as I said, this is not my only situation, but it is the most terrifying I remember. I'm struggling still with occasional nightmares and, of course, the pain. But I thought a possibly possessed object might interest you. Now, as I said, I've had many, many more stories, and I plan to submit them in due time. But I thought I would regale the first, and hopefully put someone at ease up there, and suggest that they bury their object instead of burn. Thank you, Celine. A cursed object is nothing new here. We've discussed a few of these before. The Hope Diamond, the Crying Boy Painting, Robert the Doll. But this is the first cursed blanket on my radar. It's wild stuff. Spooky stuff. And I suppose, quite literally, the stuff of nightmares. But as unsettling as that is, what about a beloved children's toy that threatens certain death? Everyone's going to be talking about this this weekend. A mother changes the batteries on her son's talking Elmo doll and is stunned to hear what comes out of its mouth. You will be, too. Yeah, James? Yeah, James? That's right. The Elmo doll is saying, kill James. That's the name of the boy who owns the Elmo Knows Your Name doll. You plug it into the computer so it will repeat the child's name. Well, the doll ran out of batteries, so the mom replaced them. That's when it started making death threats. Yeah, James? It's not something that really you would think that would ever come out of a toy, but once I heard it, I was just was kind of distraught. Yeah, James? Even worse, James began repeating the phrase, so his mom had to hide the toy. Fisher-Price makes the doll and says it will issue a voucher to replace it. It is also examining Elmo to figure out what went wrong and looking at other toys to find out if they are bloodthirsty as well. That clip courtesy of KATU. ABC News 2 out of Portland, Oregon. And I suppose will likely make any parent pause before picking up the next new toy on the market. Thanks again, Celine, for taking the time to call in. Now, follow me through the valley, over the rise and into the darkened woods, because we're going beyond. To join us on this extended conversation, simply visit patreon.com forward slash Monsters Among Us podcast. Sign up for that $5 level, and boom, instant access to 60 plus and counting episodes. Now kicking off this week's Monsters Among Us Beyond episode is Andy.
On a summer night, Douglas Wagg Jr. lay motionless across a strip of railroad tracks before being struck by an oncoming train. I'm investigative journalist Delia D'Ambra, and my investigation into exactly how Doug died took me into the depths of a bizarre mystery. It was really hard to understand what was fact and what wasn't. A mystery that has led me from one suspicious death to another. Listen to CounterClock now, wherever you listen to podcasts.